I am here today with Sonia Carley, who is a professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington, and also the director of their Masters of Public Affairs program. Sonia's research is focused on low carbon and energy efficient technology innovation, as well as the U.S. energy transition. Sonia, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So there's a growing consensus that moving away from traditional fossil fuel generation like coal and oil and even natural gas uh, and towards lower carbon power sources like wind and solar will be vital in order to mitigate some of the effects of a changing climate. And studies have shown that decarbonization will have a net positive impact on the U.S. economy in terms of jobs and household income, GDP. Uh, but that actually doesn't tell us anything about something that you study, which is the distributional consequences of the transition. Uh, and in fact, you argued, I believe, that the transition to low carbon energy resources might have serious negative implications for particular communities. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your research on that question. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Actually, you just summarized uh, the starting point to my research quite accurately, and that is I'm interested in the broader energy transition toward low carbon and efficient and advanced uh, technologies and away from fossil fuels or heavier, uh, more carbon intensive technologies um, and fully recognize that there are many significant benefits that come along with it, as you just noted, um, but that there are, in fact, some some negative or adverse consequences as well, and that has to do with the way that both the benefits and the burdens are distributed across populations. Uh, so just to give a more concrete example, the energy transition uh, will bring with it new job opportunities, for example, so those are benefits, um, but it might also lead to job losses, uh, for example, and so that's a burden. And in our research, we study some of the communities, uh, what I refer to as frontline communities, those that are facing these uh, consequences, both the lack of opportunity and um, some of the distributional burdens uh, more than others. And we hear this talked about um, a fair amount, but, but one of the things that you're doing that's so interesting to me is you're actually trying to identify a particular, to use your language, frontline communities. Um, so how do you go about doing that as opposed to, to, to paying this in a broad brush? How do you identify particular communities that are at risk from the transition? Yeah, so we've we've tried to do this in a few ways. And I should say that when I'm um, using the word we, I'm primarily working with uh, a colleague here at Indiana University, David Kaniski, as well as a team of phenomenal uh, graduate students and PhD students. Um, but what we're doing is uh, twofold. One is we're attempting to actually measure where vulnerability exists uh, or put differently, trying to identify who is more vulnerable to the um, adverse consequences of the energy transition. And uh, besides measuring it, we're also trying to just predict a priori uh, which communities might be uh, burdens more than others. And I think that that's not too hard to do if you think about some of kind of the, the burdens of the energy transition, thinking about um, those that are involved in legacy industries, for example, such as the coal industry, coal miners, for example, communities that 
host uh, coal mining operations or coal power plants are examples, um, but also thinking about more of the kind of uh, human dimension and household level scale of those individuals that might face higher energy prices and are not able to absorb um, those changes and as a result uh, suffer disproportionately to the rest of the population. Um, so just to recap, we're, we're trying to do this both kind of empirically of creating measures of vulnerability, but then also more of a kind of softer qualitative approach of identifying these communities a priori and then going into those communities and getting a sense of, of how they're facing the energy transition. Can you say a little bit more about some of these communities? So you mentioned um, coal communities. Um, what other types of, of populations are you looking at uh, and how might they be impacted by the transition? So, so far to date, uh, we've mostly just done pilot work uh, in a few different communities. And our, our broader objective is to do a larger scale kind of sweep of the country to figure out you know, who is facing um, these burdens more than others. And so that's um, future work to be continued. But what we've done so far in our pilot work is we've, uh, um, we've worked in three different places. Uh, one is Appalachia, parts of Kentucky and West Virginia. Another is St. Louis. And the third is Detroit. Uh, and it's possible that the reasons for choosing those locations are pretty obvious again, which is why I was saying that it, it was possible to kind of choose the frontline communities without knowing too much detail. Um, Appalachia, of course, houses um, much of our coal mining operations. Uh, and St. Louis uh, was chosen because of both their level of poverty as well as uh, the industry presence of the coal industry there. And Detroit was due to the industry presence of the auto, manu auto manufacturing as well as um, poverty and high rates of segregation. Um, so we did pilot work and we did field work within each of these locations. Uh, we pulled together different focus groups at each location site. And we also spoke with experts in each of these locations that are actively working on helping these communities transition as they experience the energy transition. Let me pick up on that because I do want to ask you about the role of academia and all of this and what academics are currently doing. But before we get there, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about solutions to the extent that your work has focused on that. Um, what can what can various actors do, governments, um, non-governmental actors, what can they do to make sure that these populations, once identified, are not left behind? Yeah, I think that there's a lot that uh, government can do. I think first and foremost is actually to understand the dimensions of the problem. Uh, and that is, you know, speaking of other scholars that are working in this field, this is a, a major aspect of other scholars as well as our kind of broader research objective is to highlight ways that people are um, being harmed or not being included. Um, so that's of fundamental importance. And I will note that different places have, you know, fundamentally different uh, challenges. So coal country, the challenge is, is losing employment and losing the economic vitality of entire regions or communities, whereas in places like Detroit, we find that um, households struggle to pay with pay their energy bill, and as a result, they face very difficult decisions, such as decisions about heating or eating or um, decisions about paying their medical bill versus their energy bill and having to confront this disconnection um, procedures and, and go through the legal system in that regard. Um, so to come back to your question, I, I think that understanding that this is a problem and that there are, there are multiple facets of um, this problem and that it's different location by location is, is pretty fundamental. Um, what can governments do? Well, one thing that we found in our field work that was uh, 
it was really resounding across all of um, the sites that we visited is a desire by the individuals that are burdened or not included to actually be included in the process of, of the transition. Um, in other words, these are people that would like um, bottom-up solutions that are at least, at the very least, informed by the, the very present community um, that's facing the burdens. Uh, so that's another thing is to actually work with these communities to, to have very tailored specific programs. And the programs would then vary across location depending on the problem. Is one of the things that you heard from these communities, you mentioned participation. Um, is that participation in terms of, say, acquiring rooftop solar panels, buying into community solar gardens, inclusion in that sense, or was it a different kind of participation that you heard people were interested in? I think it's both. Um, so actually part of the definition of, of energy justice, which is kind of a, a label that I would give either energy justice or just transition to, to this work, um, and one of the aspects of energy justice is procedural justice, and that is who is involved in the process of making decisions. Uh, and another is distributional justice, so how are the benefits and the burdens spread? So in your question, you just hit on two different aspects. So um, distributional justice would, uh, if we were to uphold it, we would say, well, if there are new technologies that are advanced, efficient, low carbon, they should be available and accessible to everybody. So part of being included is extending the benefits of these these technologies, such as solar panels or smart meters uh, or community solar, other things like that. Uh, efficient weatherized homes, these should be available for everybody. It should be a, even to go so far as a basic right. Um, the other aspect is procedural justice, that is who is actually involved in making these decisions. And when it comes to policies and programs to improve the conditions for these communities or these households, one could argue uh, along the lines of procedural justice that the community members that are affected, burdened, should be allowed to participate in planning for solutions. These sound to me so far mostly like government interventions, things governments can do to make some of these technologies more available to ensure that governmental processes and decision-making processes are open to participation by a wide variety of stakeholders. Is there anything that, that non-governmental actors, like even companies, should be taking the lead on? Yeah, actually, one, one other thing that we found besides the importance of kind of bottom-up solutions is how important collaborative solutions are, um, and that is across different entities. Um, so the solutions shouldn't just be government-led. They should actually be collaboration between government private business, nonprofits, and the community. Uh, and that was pretty much what we heard from every single um, person that we spoke to. Now, what can companies do? I actually think uh, some might say this is antithetical to kind of the company operation. Why would they invest in, let's say, a community that's um, burdened? Or why would they try to extend the benefits, for example, of solar panels to low-income communities or to communities of color if they are not already, you know, able to purchase um, these panels or have access to them? Um, well, I argue that it's that there are plenty of business opportunities involved in the energy transition, and they can be extended um, to these communities that might otherwise be disadvantaged. So just to give an example, um, in coal community, for example, uh, companies can use abandoned coal mines for other economic development or other kind of business opportunities, such as um, in some places they're growing hemp on um, old coal, abandoned coal operations, or um, growing different 
types of crops or other things. Um, other business opportunities, I think, require us to extend our notion of traditional business models and to think about um, new ones, such as service providers like utilities, for example, or other kind of service providers that um, come in and provide energy efficiency upgrades. Um, they might pay for the upgrades and then split a portion of the cost, for example, um, with the client or the customer. Um, so these are things that, you know, exist to some degree in some locations, but they can um, definitely be extended in the context of the energy transition and vulnerable populations. Let me take a step back now um, and ask whether you think scholars are spending enough time thinking about these issues, about the distributional consequences of decarbonization. Yeah, I would say um, to date, there has been some scholarship on this, but it has been quite small up until very recent years. Um, in recent years, however, the topic of energy justice has started to surge in, uh, I would say, if you look at traditional public affairs, public administration, public policy, and law journals. Um, and this is based on a, a study that I actually did with a graduate student of mine that we just published in um, Policy Studies Journal. So we find that the, the topic of energy justice is growing quite significantly. Um, I would say at the forefront of this field are scholars such as uh, Diana Hernandez and Tony Reams, who are really um, dissecting some of the kind of the major trade-offs and tensions and grappling with some of the problems associated with energy insecurity and energy poverty and lack of access uh, to certain things such as energy efficient homes or solar panels. Um, and so we're growing in that space, I would say, as led by scholars such as, um, such as them. Uh, but we still have so much to go, I think, in identifying, um, one, the extent of these problems. Um, two, identifying geographically where vulnerable populations exist. Uh, and then three, really coming back to your question about solutions. We know so little about the solutions for different communities. We even know so little about the national programs that we have available to help um, low-income residents, for example, with energy services, such as the Weatherization Assistance Program or the Low-Income Housing Energy Assistance Program. Um, so, so much more research is needed to dissect how these programs work and what are best-case scenarios and how do we improve them, how do we expand eligibility and so forth. And in doing that research, you, know, you and I, for example, are in, in different disciplines. I teach at a law school. You're at a school of public and environmental affairs. Um, do we need more is interdisciplinary work in this area? And another way of asking that would be, what kinds of expertise do we need to get at the questions you've just identified or to find solutions? Every kind of expertise. I mean, this has to be an interdisciplinary issue. Just just studying energy is a, alone interdisciplinary um, by itself, not even extending it to the to the justice and the just transition kind of realm. Um, to understand energy supply chains, um, one needs to have kind of an interdisciplinary perspective and, and work, I think, across um, and with multiple scholars in different disciplines. Um, but once we extend it to the, the energy transition and thinking about these really complex and overlapping issues such as energy insecurity and, um, for example, entire communities that might lose their revenue base as a result of coal mining or coal power plant operations going down, um, this requires as many disciplines as we can possibly put together, in, in my in my opinion. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for taking the time.